welcome to New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Well, I am Pastor Ben. It's my privilege to share God's word with you this morning. But four weeks ago, I got to go on a special trip. I, I think like a lot of us, we just kind of want to get out of town, just do anything. So we went to Montana, not because I just wanted to get out of town, but because we had a, a family gathering out there. We had a baptism we were celebrating. And so we trucked off to Northwest Montana in our minivan, right? 16 hours there and 16 hours back in a van with me, my wife, my three-year-old daughter, and my one-year-old son. And right now you're thinking, that sounds absolutely horrible, right? For some of you, just driving is not enjoyable, it's not comfortable, right? It's kind of boring, just going in one direction for that many miles just kind of sounds like a nightmare. Now, if you have young kids or you've had young kids, you're probably thinking, well, that sounds like a nightmare because of some other reasons, right? Trying to entertain a three-year-old and a one-year-old for that long can be very challenging. Sooner or later, you know they're going to start a fight. They're going to start crying, whining, have to go to the bathroom, and you're going to stop every five miles. You know, all, all those things that come into parenthood. So you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound that enjoyable, and now you're going to complain about your trip, but that's not actually true. I do have one thing to complain about, but it's not the trip because I love traveling. I love getting in the car and just going on down the road. Even through North Dakota and South Dakota actually wasn't that bad. I enjoy getting behind the wheel. I enjoy seeing what, what God's country looks like as I travel from place to place to place. I just, I like that part. But like I said, there is one thing I don't really enjoy. And it actually is surrounding this idea of the preferences of the food we eat on the way. Now, for some of you, you get this, right? You, as you drive, some of you like the fast food and some of you like the dine-in. So that can be kind of a source of contention in your family. But for us, especially during the pandemic, that's not really an issue because the bottom line is if I'm driving 16 hours, we are not stopping unless we absolutely have to stop. So drive-in or drive-through is the way to go, right? We pull up, we get our food, and we move on. Now, for some of you might be thinking, well, maybe that irritation is from what restaurants you choose because we all have our preferences, right? We like certain restaurants, we don't like other restaurants, even when it comes to fast food, and we might bicker and fight about what we prefer, maybe even just in that moment. But that's not really the issue either. It actually, for our family, it comes down to the individual preferences at the restaurant. Now, that sounds kind of weird because you're probably thinking, well, how hard is that, right? You pull up to the speaker, you all order individual combos and everything's fine. Well, here's the deal. My wife is a little bit more picky than me. She, she's here, so I should say she's more selective than me when it comes to her dining choices. And so this is what happens. She has certain foods she will not eat. The three things she will not eat are mustard, onions, and tomatoes, right? That, that is not on the list 
of edible food for her. And so I've learned this mantra, and it sounds something like this. I'll, I'll pull up to the drive-through, and I talk to the person on the speaker, and I'll say something like, hey, could I have two number fours, but on one of them, please, don't put mustard, onions, and tomatoes, right? That, that's the mantra. I know it well. I repeat it well. And they take my order. And then normally something like this happens. The six-year-old boy, he's running the drive-through, says something condescending like, sir, the number four doesn't have tomatoes on it, which of course I'm thinking, why would I know your menu? I don't work here. But of course I don't say that because I'm a good person typically, right? So I say, thank you for letting me know. I'll try to remember that for next time. Of course, I'm never gonna remember that for next time, right? I'm gonna say the same thing. But we pull up to the window. I pay my money. I get the sack. I give it to my wife. We go out and we'll go onto the freeway or the highway, interstate, as long as we're going down the road and then the food gets distributed to everybody. And so everyone get their meal and I'll get my burger and guess what happens? I will take the bun off and I will look inside and guess what's not in my sandwich either? That's right, mustard, onions, and tomatoes. And this is a problem because I like mustard, onions, and tomatoes on my burger. In fact, I feel like if they're not on my burger, it's not actually a burger, right? It's not complete. Something's falling short. But 75% of the time, my wife's you know, demands at the drive-thru become my realities because the person just kind of across the board just takes off onions, mustard, and tomatoes off of everything. So that can be kind of this, this constant irritation that, that we battle together about. It's not that big a deal, but you know, it's kind of annoying at times. But you all get this because you're human. You're human, so you have natural preferences. That's how God has hardwired us. We're hardwired to like certain things and dislike certain things. And it doesn't take very long to realize that we all have unique preferences. And oftentimes, if you have a spouse, you know that your preferences, your likes are different than the person you even married to, right? The person that you're closest to. Even, even you have conflict in that area. And there's a problem. Sometimes our preferences, we, we demand them and we want them and they become maybe a little bit bigger than they should be. And they start creating conflict in our relationships. Right? They start creating conflict in our friendships. They start creating conflict in our marriages. And they can even start creating conflict in our relationship with God, including his mission that he wants us to live out in the world. But today we're going to attack that head on. We're going to have that conversation and we're going to see some amazingly profound and wise words from Christ that actually help us navigate that in a healthy way and to navigate that in a beneficial way. This is what we read about Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered. So let me kind of give you the before story of all of this stuff. You see, before this happened, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were trying to trip up Jesus. Their goal is very simple. If they could make him look naive or uneducated, then the people who were following him would, would walk away. That was their goal. And so they got together, the Pharisees got together, and they crafted this question to make Jesus look naive and uneducated. And it was a very good question. And they asked him a specific question about taxes. But as you probably know, Jesus responded with something incredibly wise, incredibly profound. And the crowd, they were won over by Jesus and the Pharisees failed. Well, once the Pharisees failed and the Sadducees stepped in, which is interesting because the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't really agree on much of, of anything 
the only thing they really agreed on was that they both didn't like Jesus so much. And so the Sadducees, they came in to be the heroes of the day. And they also had a question, right? A great question to stump Jesus, to make him look silly, right? To make him look stupid. And surely if they could ask him the right question, the crowd would just go away. And so that's what they did. They asked him a question about heaven, which is ironic because the Sadducees didn't actually believe in the afterlife. Once again, Jesus, he answers with such rich wisdom. His answer is so profound that the crowd actually grows and the Sadducees are defeated. So now Jesus, he's, he's, he's defeated the Pharisees. He's defeated the Sadducees. In fact, this is the last time that we'll read about the Sadducees in the whole gospel of Matthew because they just kind of take off with their tail between their legs after this encounter. But the Pharisees, they're not done. They're not done because they see the crowd growing and they see the makeup of that crowd. People of all different walks of life, all different preferences, right? Rich and poor, different nationalities, everything is in this crowd. People who believed in Jesus, people who definitely did not believe in Jesus. Skeptics, the curious, people on the fence, all sorts of people are in this crowd. And so the Pharisees got together. They had a plan. They were gonna break up the crowd. Their goal is to make Jesus look like a divisive character. And if they could do that, if they could make him look uneducated, naive, or just somebody who kind of just makes waves, then surely the crowd would divide. So they got together and they had this conversation about what question are we going to ask, right? They brainstormed, they huddled, and this is what they did. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So they got together and they had this great question, the perfect question that they thought of to get Jesus. But this is what they also needed. Not only did they need a great question, but they needed a great question giver. And so they got their hero, right? They got their lawyer, they got their scholar, the person with the golden tongue to ask this question to Jesus to get the crowd to walk away, to get the crowd on their side. And this is the question that they came up with. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now, when they asked this question, the whole crowd actually knew the answer. Everyone knew the answer. If you knew anything about Judaism, you knew the answer because this actually is written in the book of Deuteronomy, right? It was already recorded for them and they all had it memorized. They would know it as the Shema. So what are they doing here? They're not obviously trying to trick Jesus. It's not a trick question. What are they trying to accomplish? The answer is they knew something about Jesus from their encounters with Jesus and his teachings is that oftentimes he would go against the grain, right? He would go against the grain. So they asked him this question, right? Jesus, what is your preferred commandment, right? If you had to go into scripture and pick out one, what, what is your favorite? The one that you really like, the one that you want to put all the weight on. That's what they're trying to do because they knew what we know, right? If you make a choice, if you vote, you divide, right? If you have to make a leadership decision at your work, there's gonna be some people who buy into it and some people who don't, right? We get this every time that we show our preference or every time that we make a choice, the people are divided. And so this is their strategy. They thought surely Jesus, who always says something that's kind of off the beaten path, would respond in a unique way to this. 
And the crowd, who all knew the answer, everyone knew what the answer was supposed to be, when he said something else, they're all gonna walk away, right? The strategy was very simple. Divide and conquer. Get Jesus to say something that no one else thought. And then they would walk away because they think differently. So this is what Jesus did. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. So what does Jesus do? He actually gives the response that the whole crowd was thinking. Right, this is the Shema. This is what everyone had memorized and what everyone was taught. This is the appropriate answer. And when he said this, the disciples, his 12 followers, they were shocked because this never happens, right? This never happened with Jesus. He was in perfect alignment with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the crowd, the disciples, everyone. They were all on the same page. Everyone had bought in. And these disciples thought, hey, this is kind of nice. Right, this is kind of nice. There's no tension. We're all friends. This is great. And for the first time of following Jesus, it, it feels like this, right? We all can get along. But this is what they knew, and this is what you already know. You know this wasn't going to last. You know that Jesus would say something else, right? The other shoe would drop, and there would be a stir, right? He would make them think. So this is what he did. He said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So he continues, right? And when he does this, the disciples are thinking, oh no. Come on, Jesus. It felt so great. There was no tension. Everyone was getting along, right? This, this was a great moment for us, Jesus. But now you're actually giving a second answer to the question of what is the number one commandment, and now you've given a second commandment. Right? How is this going to go? But the crowd, the people, they were astonished once again. It was so profound. It was so wise. What Jesus was doing was he was taking all the commandments and all the laws and boiling them down into two central thoughts that held them all together. Every law and every commandment is all about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And they were amazed at the wisdom because it's true, right? That's an amazing point. Think about it. Think back to maybe confirmation or a time you studied the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments. They're all connected to one of these two thoughts, right? You shall have no other gods before me. That's our relationship with God, right? How about this? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's about our relationship with God, right? That connection that we have with God. How about this one? Do not steal, right? That's our relationship with, with one another. How about this? Do not commit adultery. That's our relationship with our spouse. You see how every commandment and every law all throughout scripture is connected to one of these two ideas. It's all about our relationship with God or our relationship with one another. And Jesus takes these two ideas, this love for God and this love for other, and he binds them together with this word, this word love, which is kind of an interesting word, isn't it? Because when we think of laws and commandments, mandates, guidelines, we don't think of the word love, do we? The word we think of is control. 
right? Laws and commandments and rules, they're just meant to control us. But Jesus knew his laws and his commandments actually weren't meant to do that. See, the intent of his law was love. And the reason he knew that is because he is the lawgiver, right? He knew the heart of the lawgiver because he was the lawgiver. And he knew that every law and every commandment was given to us as a gift to help us, to care for us, to guide us. And it's this word love that makes this verse so perfect in our, in our current sermon series called Unmasked. Because if you've been here with us, we're in part seven now, but if you've been following with us, you know there's a central theme running through this whole thing. The theme starts off with a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And he says to his followers that they will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. Right? They will know you're my disciples because of your love. What an amazing statement. Right? This amazing statement that we are meant to be shown we are believers by our love. But that's a challenging thing, isn't it? It's challenging because, one, it's not always true. But it's also challenging because what is love? Right? How do we define that? There's so many ways to define that. Right? Is love saying, I love you? Is, is love a feeling we get when we're around somebody? Is love letting somebody do whatever they want to do? Is that loving? Or is love not letting somebody do something because it's going to be damaging to their life? Is that love? Is love something else? Right? Is love always telling somebody the truth even though it hurts their feelings? Or is love lying to somebody to protect their feelings? You see how this is complex and difficult. But this is why Jesus' words are so genius. See, he boils it down to two ideas. It's all about the interconnection of our love for God and our love for one another. Think about it this way. If you want to love others, you have to love God's commandments. Maybe you might want to think of it this, this way. If you want to love others, you've got to love God's ways, right? Because God's ways bring life. Here's the other way to look at it. If you want to love the creator, you have to love his creation, right? Because God loves the people he made, even the people that we don't really get along with all the time. People have different preferences than us. It kind of bothers us, right? But if we want to love our creator, we have to love his creation. What Jesus is saying here, it's so profound and so powerful. And the crowd was absolutely in awe. So what are we supposed to take home today? What are we supposed to learn from this? What are we supposed to walk out the door with today as we continue this sermon series called Unmasked? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to do what we've been doing every week. We need to unmask how the world sees us as believers. We need to unmask how the world maybe sees the church, right? And this hasn't always been fun. It's not always fun to take an honest assessment of where we're at or what people think, right? It doesn't always feel good. In fact, probably each week it hasn't felt that great, but that's not the point. It's not to make us feel bad, but we want to sit down and take an honest assessment so we can get back to where God wants us. You see, we need to unmask these things so we can get these things out of the way to do what God has called us to do, to be known by our love. So what do we find today? You already know where I'm going. What we find today is the thing that gets in the way of God's love is actually our preferences. Now, as you probably know, every human is hardwired with certain preferences. If you go out to the community, you know that you don't think the same way that everyone else thinks. 
So it should come as no surprise that when we all come together in a church sanctuary, the answer is we all have different preferences too. And that's why we have three different worship styles, right? We have a casual service, we have a traditional service, and you are at the modern service, right? These are all uniquely tailored towards the preferences of our church family. And our goal is to cast a wide net so we can reach people of all different walks of life and all different preferences. But here's the problem. Sometimes these preferences, they can become divisive, right? Because we have this natural tendency to make our preferences sacred. As if, if Jesus came to new life, we know which service Jesus would go to, right? He would come to the modern service. We all know this. And he would come wearing the clothes that we wear. He would really love that I don't tuck in my shirt. He would love the band, right? He would love it all. But see, the problem is when we start thinking this way, we start elevating our preferences. And naturally, we start pushing other preferences a little bit lower, right? Their thoughts and their feelings and their ideas just aren't quite as important. And the natural result in church is it creates turmoil, doesn't it? Right, we have this conflict based on our, our preferences and it creates issues. So what are we gonna do? Right, how do we fix this? Well, it's Christ's words that are the healing balm today for us. Remember what he says. He says, you shall love your neighbor, now this is the key, as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which means that every relationship that you are in you should care about that person's preferences as much, or if not more, than your own. Now, if you've been married, you've had conflict in your marriage, right? That's not like, oh yeah, you're, you're the only ones, right? We all do. But how often is it connected to this idea where we wanna make it all about me? We wanna make it all about our preferences. Because here's the truth, you know this. As you look at maybe your friends, or you've looked at your own life or your own maybe past marriages, is it often time a dying marriage is connected with somebody trying to get their own way all of the time, right? They elevate their own preferences. This is why Christ's words are so healing. He uses our, our natural selfishness, the way that we see the world, and he actually takes it and twists it so we can see the importance of other people. And we can see the preferences, the importance of the preferences of other people and how it heals those relationships. It heals our friendships, it heals our marriages. And that's true no matter what you believe about Jesus, right? You can be a non-believer and that's true. Right? That's just good, solid truth and good, solid advice from Jesus. But as Christ followers, there's a different thing that we're really thinking about. We always should be thinking about. And that's the Great Commission. Right? We should be growing God's kingdom, right? We have a mission that Jesus gave us and we should be caring about people's eternity and people's relationship with God. So we see another truth, just like a dying relationship is typically connected to someone wanting their preferences all the time, a dying church is exactly the same. You see, if you're a part of a dying church, very often, the problem is that church has not changed to reach the very people it was meant to reach. Right? It's been planted in a community to reach that community. We don't always like that, that's not always comfortable. So sometimes we say things like this, I'm so glad while the whole world changes, nothing in here ever changes. Or we say something like this when we're upset. We might say, uh, you know, here's the problem. The church is changing. 
right? The church I used to know is different. Now, I'm not talking about eternal truth because obviously the Bible, theology, that stuff never changes because God doesn't change. God doesn't need to change, right? He's the source of all wisdom. So scripture doesn't change. But the ways that we use to reach people must change because the preferences of the world have to be just as important to us as our own. You know who knew this better than anyone else? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, and this is what he knew, and this is what we really need to hold on to, is that the Great Commission, God's mission for us, and this idea of loving God and loving others, they were intimately connected. Look at how he lived it out in his life. This is what he wrote. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I might share in its blessings. Wow. See, what did Paul know? He knew that to reach a world in need, that he had to take their preferences, their desires, and put them on equal footing as his own. In fact, as you can see, he didn't just put them on equal footing as his own, right? He sacrificed his own preferences for theirs to share the good news with a community, with a world that desperately needed Jesus. And that's good news. That's good news. It's not easy, but it's good news. Because if we can learn to do this, to put those people who need Jesus, if we can put their preferences on equal playing field, and actually elevate theirs over our own, we will fulfill our mission and vision as a church to bring Christ's transformation into the hearts and lives of our community and our world.